0: (laughs) Welcome to Tetra Podcast, coming at you live from internet land, featuring me, John Conway, and uh, Darren Nash. All right, let's get started. Tell me about Microraptor.
1: Microraptor. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, myself and team of colleagues based at the University of Southampton—Roland DeCat, Colin Palmer, uh, Gareth Dyke, well, Gareth the lead author, Baratham, Ganapathy Subramani—we um, uh, and others—we uh, basically made um, life size models of Microraptor, put them in wind tunnel tests in order to uh, examine stuff like the. Uh, lift-drag ratio, aerial performance of this animal. And the results are kind of difficult to interpret and somewhat confusing if you're not an aerodynamics whiz. And I certainly am not. don't know about you. Um,
0: <laughs> oh, yeah.
1: But, quite the whiz. But, <laughs> you, know, you know, all the terminology. You understand all the mathematics and everything, right? Um, how to I do understand. it all in my head, Darren. Uh, I, I, well, I use, I use paper at least. But... Um, uh, I should stop drawing this tarp and I can't concentrate. Bloody fish. The main thrust, you know, the main take-home message is that while there have been I think three or four, maybe more projects, uh, published papers in which people have tried to um, reconstruct the aerial performance, the aerodynamic performance of Microraptor, they are all substantially flawed in terms of how they've actually imagined Microraptor. So... We're all familiar. Those of us who know dinosaurs and feathered dinosaurs are are aware of the fact that you know some of these models produced by some of these teams aren't anything like a real Microraptor. They're not built like a dinosaur. Some of them use kind of things that are more like flying fish with like their wings sticking all out to the side, sort of flat-bodied. Others have used kind of weird schematic animals that weren't didn't didn't have the appropriate three-dimensionality. And one uh, reconstruction in particular comes up with a completely well, a very difficult to credit um, hypothesis for how the, the hind limb uh, feathers are held. Uh, they came up with like a bizarre kind of biplane configuration that just, just does not work at all if you look at the fossils or try and understand these things. So we wanted to do, we wanted to do this right. We wanted to make a, an accurate micro model, put feathers on it accurately, this thing, so, so Colin Palmer made this model. He, it's not 100% right. There are still things that are technically inaccurate with it. But one of the interesting things about it from our point of view is that this, this ties in with the whole feathered dinosaur thing is that the body shape of these animals is obviously substantially different from the body shape that you might guess from the skeletal remains. So once you like put all the feathering on them and like contour everything in, they, they, they look, well, I don't know, they, they, they're far more birdy than, uh, than they are in, in some reconstructions. So what do we actually find? Well, it's really, it's really cool doing wind tunnel tests. We've got a giant wind tunnel at the University of Southampton. It's like a huge walk-in thing. It's not just like a flume tank, like a little meter-wide thing. It's a giant walk-in thing. You can be exposed to all kinds of hilarious um, wind tunnel-type experiments in there. <laughs> and... Uh, uh, what do we find? Well it's really complicated and I can't really do it justice, so'll uh, just gloss over that.: mm-hmm. No we found that, found that microraptor, yes, it can fly, yes it can I mean yes, it can glide, uh, but it performs best. The most efficient uh, drag to lift um, well the, the highest the, the best coefficients were when it was um, it, it had to launch from heights, and it had to have a really high drag ratio so the best lift was generated with the highest drag but the test i should add that this was in nature communication so this is like quite a you know high profile gee paper got an enormous amount of publicity um so far as i can tell people that work on this stuff generally think that it's you know pretty good it's not with the other studies as soon as they came out people there's alarm bells all over the place people are saying well the body shape's not right. The wing configuration's wrong. The feathers are oriented the wrong way round. <laughs> one one study actually had the feathers round the wrong, you know, back to front. Um, it, it seems that that it generating it could function at generating this reasonably, uh, this like um, a, a, a good amount of lift, even. It, the, the form of its feathers wasn't that relevant, so the form of its wing actually didn't make that much difference to how good it is at generating lift, which is really interesting because it implies that the form of the feathers, and as you know, the feathers in Microraptor are asymmetrical, but slightly, only slightly asymmetrical. And we discussed last time as to what that may or may not mean for bird flight. A bit controversial as to what, what it means. Um,
0: Although I think we should say that um, Mike's point was pretty strong Is that in that it doesn't matter. It doesn't really do anything. It's been A little overstated. bit of, asymmetry, a, a little it, bit of a, asymmetry doesn't do anything
1: aerodynamically. That's it, that's it. So the the, the significance of asymmetry has been overstated. The fact that Microraptor my, my has got it has meant that some people have, have thrown up their arms and said, oh, wow, Microraptor was the best flyer ever. Uh, and yeah, this, <laughs> or, or at least it could fly. It's got four um,
0: wings, man! <laughs> it's
1: got four wings, so it was twice as fast as, <laughs> as, as other flying things. But... um, um uh, I've started looking at Facebook and I've lost my train of thought. Um, yeah, so basically the configuration of feathers wasn't that important for the aerodynamic performance. But the thing that I take away from it is that if Microraptor has to jump from a significant height in order for its amount of lift to be to work, for it to glide from one source to another one place to another, the fact that it incurs really high drag as well. The take-home thing that I get from it is that yes, it could glide, and yes, it was okay at it, but it's not a sort of super specialized you know, efficient glider. It's not doing a particularly good job aerodynamically um, of 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 moving through the air. And some of the previous studies have basically worked from the assumption or they've concluded or inferred that Microraptor is kind of like a flying squirrel dinosaur, that it's a super-specialised, you know, brilliant little glider. And it's like, well, no, in actual fact, it can do it and it's okay at it, but it's not great at it. And the fact that it's got this substantial amount of drag, I think indicates that it's, it's not a particularly good glider, which, which I think, because f- my perspective on this, obviously I'm not the one who did all the aerodynamic calculations. I'm the one who sort of like tried to tie it in with what we know about the functional morphology and ecology of these animals. Um, this fits with the fact that, that f- all the data we've got on Microraptor at the moment, stomach contents and tooth morphology and where it's found in the ecosystem, it seems to be a generalist. It's doing a little bit of everything. You know, there's a recently published specimen that had fish preserve their stomach contents. Well, there aren't many fish that you can find when you glide from tree to tree, not ordinarily. So not outside of the world. of The, <laughs> the future is wild. But um, um, yeah, it's, it, it fits in with the idea that this is a, a generalist animal doing a bit of gliding, but it's not, it's not the flying squirrel of the dinosaur world. It's, it's okay at it. So Dyke et al., Nature Communications. Um, yeah, uh, quite quite a a nice, a nice little paper, which is the latest... And certainly not the last word on the subject of light flight. There are other studies that are in progress at the moment.
0: I think you should mention the um, results of where it, uh, how it held its hind limbs.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, because yeah. that was quite – yeah, we, we tested different configurations. So um, using the three-dimensional model that, that Colin made, now there's a lot of slop in terms of – so, so I'll backtrack a little bit. The early reconstructions of Microraptor showed it sprawling. They showed it with its hind limbs sticking out basically as far as they could go as if it's a frog or something, sticking its its hind legs laterally out from the sides of its pelvis. And people that know theropod dinosaurs and know Mesozoic birds will say that that's not likely because everything we know about the anatomy of those animals, in particular the way that the proximal ends of their femora and their hip sockets are arranged, The sort of little anatomical details indicate they really couldn't do that. They couldn't sprawl their legs out that far. And ordinarily, in theropods, the hind limbs are pretty much constrained to being perpendicular to the long axis of the body. So they 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 can um, abduct the hind limb a bit. They can stretch it out from the hind limb a bit. But the question is, how much can can they do it? And we wanted to account for that. So we know that these we know from three dimensional animal from um, from uh, Canada, Hesperonicus, we know that these animals had a reasonable amount of um, uh, abduction was possible, lateral splay of the hind limbs was possible. How much? It's really hard. It's really hard to say. There are still conflicting views on this. So we tested one model where we had the legs going straight down in the standard theropod orientation and we had another model where we splayed them out as laterally as far as we could. Um, and that was actually still like pretty far. It's it's. You know, there's still once you once you uh, sort of infer things for you know what what might have been possible with cartilage involved and stuff. Like I say, there is a lot of guesswork in this, but um, it still seems they could abduct the hind limb a reasonable amount, but not mm. to the degree seen in the earlier models where they've got them horizontal. Sort of horizontal. So, yeah. and we got different glide trajectories coming from those um, uh, different different. Different models, the um, they all they all kind of work, but they worked best with the limbs in the in the the legs down uh, posture, um, and it's so uh, it's always tricky to say whether what you you know what what the um, results you get from theoretical work like this actually demonstrates that that's what the animal most likely did, but that could be one prediction from this that the animals. Um, most likely, in terms of they got like the best glide performance. They they um, covered the great the greatest amount of distance, all that kind of stuff. The most the glide trajectory was most efficient when the hind limbs were in the the standard uh, straight down posture. So, um, there's um, a
0: lot. Of, I you're very careful with your the way you're phrasing this. But I'm I, trying I, to I, be. Yeah, I I think unnecessarily so. You're not you're not um, podcasting for nature here. <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> We're not peer reviewed. We can say what we like. I, I I think it's a fairly strong result that it, the best glide performance is the most biologically plausible position. It seems yeah. Yeah. It seems very neat. Uh, and I uh, think if someone wants to challenge it, they'll have to do a much better job, which might be tricky.
1: Yeah. Well, that's that's a that's a totally fair thing to say. I would I would absolutely agree with that. Mm. Um. So yeah, I mean, I there's, there's there's so many different ways to approach a study like this, and uh, on the one hand, if we were to, if if you were not to approach this from the point of view of like complex mathematical modeling involving wind tunnel tests, if you were just to like reconstruct Microraptor based on what we know from the fossils, and then from that say what do you think it could do, what was the most likely thing? Well, I think as people that know dinosaurs and know Mesozoic birds, we would. Basically, endorse what you've just succinctly stated, and what I've rambly more sort of generally referred to. Yeah, I think that is the conclusion that we've most likely would would come to. So, uh, so intuitively, yes, it does. It does feel good, and it did match. It does match with, like I say, other lines of evidence. What we think we know about Microraptor based on uh, stomach contents and ecological context, and and also the whole phylogenetic eco-morphological setting for these dinosaurs so these people that that imagined microraptor as a flying squirrel dinosaur able to splay its limbs out those aren't you know i don't like saying this stuff because it sounds rude but those are people who come from like a sometimes not all of them but sometimes they seem to come from like a you know they've got an agenda they want this thing to be they want these animals to be different from greg paul's velociraptor you know that's they're, they're trying to make them the weird i mean I haven't mentioned the names. Sorry, I've got someone at the door,
0: so I'm just going to be back in a second. New boots. Boots. I had a package earlier today and I was excited. I thought it might be my new boots, but it was just cat food. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid cat, but that was the boots. Yay! Okay, so where were we? Slagging off all those people that
1: don't yeah really yeah work well, on a Well, so you know, I like. Uh, are, we, are we recording it?
0: Yeah.
1: I um I deliberately haven't mentioned the names of of those people because I don't want to appear mean. But um if you if you look at uh, okay, I'll say the, the the one by Chatterjee and Templin in particular. That's really odd because that's the one where they come up with this radical bi, biplane configuration, mm. which in which you have to imagine like a whole load of s- sort of anatomical configurations present in the hind limb. That it's like, there should be loads of there's loads of red flags there because immediately it's like, well, how did the animal do that? So so they imagine that it's able to erect. We don't have a terminology for those hind limb feathers. To my knowledge, you know, we don't talk of them as being remages or, or primaries or secondaries, all those kind of things that we do for four feathers. And may, maybe we should at some stage, given that they're now turning out to be pretty much ubiquitous on um, uh, feathered manorapturans. Yes. I, I shouldn't say feathered manorapturans because all manorapturans are feathered, but on big feathered men, uh, A- 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 remigians or whatever the hell. <laughs> all those, all those things with big feathers. Um, and 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 so that they come up with a model whereby the, the the long hind limb feathers, so the met, I think the metatarsal feathers are like furled forwards. They're they're kind of like parallel to the the fore limb feathers. And so well there ha, there has to be like muscular control and all this kind of stuff. And the, they they're still saying that the animals like some tuck the feather, tuck the feathers up posteriorly when they walk, because presumably these animals walk or perch or something. Mm. So. Um, there just seems to be a lot of it's, – it's one, it's one of those studies where, which I think are not infrequent in paleontology where people come up with an idea that, ah, this must serve that kind of function. So they come up with that model, test that model. They say they supported it. Um, there are substantial problems with the, their particular kinds of analysis in that no one else can replicate them. And I think we I, – I, again, I, don't, I want to be careful on my words, but I think we actually refer to this specifically – in the Microraptor paper, but when we have actually tried to um, get hold of the, um, the specific methodology used, you can't, no one else can actually test this, the, the specific, um, yeah, the way. Oh, yeah, we do. Make, okay, so in Dayak et al. 2013, we actually state Chatterjee and Templin analyzed flight performance using two pieces of stream tube theory software which are called uh, a n f l p t w r stand for animal flight power and another one two long acronyms we have been unable despite repeated attempts to obtain copies of these codes from chatterjee and Templeton, or to replicate their methods now those of you who are aware of well you know you know colin palmer he's like one of the currently one of the leading people in the world in terms of like aerodynamic theory animal animal flight behavior um and um and he is very thorough on you know unquestioned mathematical expertise the same as these other guys who we regard as like top guys in this top people in this field and um yeah he's he's run this you know as best he can really really try to get to grips with it and it just it just doesn't work you just can't understand how they did this so um Hmm. So, this, yeah, this current study, that's where we're at right now, and um, we shall see what happens next. Like I say, I know there are other studies due to appear on the same subject.
0: Yes. Okay, let's move along then to yeah, uh, so. this, this thing I haven't heard of or read about.
1: So more, more <laughs> feathered dinosaurs. Um, so, so Microraptor is a feathered Deinonychosaur of some sort. Um, well, it's a dromaeosaurid. Dromaeosaurids, in current phylogenies, are close to the clade. They're the sister taxon to the clade that includes truodontids and avialans or birds. So currently, most phylogenies are not finding a monophyletic dromaeosauria that excludes birds. They're finding they're finding to be closer to birds than they are to dromaeosaurids. So anyway, um, moving that that, and yeah, we could talk extensively about maniraptoran phylogeny, paravian phylogeny. I think there's so many interesting stories going on there. There's a paper that just came out, dated September 12th. Well, that's not just come out, but whatever. I only got, Well, I only got it a couple of days ago. Unique caudal Plumage of Yeholornis and Complex Tail Evolution in Early Birds is by Jingmei O'Connor and colleagues, published in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS. <laughs> PNAS. PNAS. <laughs> um, so Yeholornis has been known for, well, by the standards of these things for quite a while. I don't know when it was first named late 1990s, I guess, which is probably wrong. But um, Yehelornis is a long-tailed early bird, originally regarded as like an intermediate between animals like Archaeopteryx and animals like uh, Confucius Ornis. And these long-tailed birds, so Archaeopteryx has got the kind of fern-frond kind of thing where there are feathers coming off, um, pairs of feathers coming off on either side of the caudal vertebrae. Yehelornis, we know from specimens with the feathers intact, that they've got a kind of distal um, kind of array of... Feathers that look like display feathers that are just at the tail tip, which is also coincidentally what we see in Microraptor, and that was why we uh, referred to Microraptor as a five-winged fly because the we tested for, you know, we did an aerodynamically accurate tail, and and it generates lift, so it's a lifting surface. It's defined as a wing. But Yeholornis, the, um, the, the the wing, the the tail tip feathers are quite, quite strange. In some, in one species called Yeholornis palmer penis or Palmer penis, sorry, um, another hilarious quip. Um, these like feather tips, the, the, the tips of these tail feathers are kind of tapering. so like pointed tail tip feathers. They don't seem to have an obvious aerodynamic function. So are they for display? Well, that's what Jing May O'Connor and colleagues have, have said in a couple of papers. They think this is like evidence for use of an elaborate caudal feather structure used in display, presumably sociosexual display. I like mm. it. Obviously, ties in very nicely with the work on sexual selection in dinosaurs that I've done with Dave Hone and other people. And this new paper, now things get even weirder because, let me look at the paper. Which species are we looking at here? Are we looking at Yehilornis? Okay, we're looking at Yehilornis spur. spur. <laughs> another, spur. One, another one in the eye from Mike Easy. Spur. As everyone says, as I know from t- t- speaking to many people about this. <laughs> Um, and yeah, this Yehelornis spur this Yehelornis uh, so that so that means it's a species of Yehelornis that hasn't yet been allocated to a species, either because it's a new one or because they can't say which species it is it looks like Yehelornis palmapenis from the form of the sorry, palmapenis from the form of the, the tail tip feathers but, this will blow your mind John, looking at a reconstruction of it now it's got wing feathers, it's got tail tip feathers it's also got a little tail growing off the top of its ilium, So off the top of the pelvis in this animal, there is a, a hand-shaped clump of posterodorsally projecting feathers. Um, what the hell? I mean, they've got... I've, there's a lot of stuff in this paper. I'm not going to go through it in detail, but but they've got a whole section here on... Asking about, you know, what could the adaptive value of this be? Could it could it be like an aerodynamic thing? And basically, they conclude, yeah, probably not. It's probably some kind of sort of unique, weird ass kind of display thing. Um, Although, having said that, maybe I should actually read the paper because that's not what they say at all. (laughs) Given given the like, because I just thought I just thought they said. The discovery of this feather track demonstrates that fan-like, proximally located, presumably aerodynamically valuable tails were not limited to birds with derived morphology. The distal tail frond, so they're saying the distal tail frond is primarily ornamental. Yeah. Uh, uh, even the smaller frond may have resembled many ornaments in living birds in retaining some aerodynamic utility, particularly given the long moment arm about the centre of gravity provided by the characters of the elongated tail if you honest. So they're kind I don't know, they're sort of fence sitting there a little bit, aren't they? They're saying they that are. it look it's a display thing, perhaps. That's what it looks like, but maybe it also still had an aerodynamic function, which may or may not have been residual. But I don't know. I I I do confess to being somewhat skeptical. Um it's quite nice in the fossil, in this 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 fossil um scene in dorsal view, you've got like an obvious uh, these long pointed tail tip feathers and then you know, much close to the body. Well, just over the body. Uh
0: yeah, when I'm I've, looking I'm looking at a reconstruction here which looks pretty good. Yeah. Uh, it's on Deviant Art by uh I don't I forget his real name. Paleo
1: Aeolos. I don't know who that is, but um mm. fun to them. It's Quite a nice drawing. So, so this is this is pretty cool. In actual fact, the the fossils that I'm looking at here they show that extra frond as being over the first, say, third, the proximal third of the tail, mm. where reconstruction shows it as being. Hmm, I was going to say more like over the body, but then I suppose I'm looking at the. I suppose. I don't know. So some of the fossils still show it as being further along the tail than their reconstruction does. I have to check that out. It looks from it looks from the fossils as if the base of this accessory frond is still well out onto the tail proper. Mm. Well posterior to the pelvis. Whereas their reconstruction shows the base being literally dorsal to the ilium, which is the first illustration I looked at, and mm. the distance of the frond being well out over the tail. So um I mean, that happens quite a bit. I'm not saying they've screwed up or anything, but it does happen a bit in papers. Reconstructions actually don't match the fossils totally.
0: Yes, surprisingly. Oh, wait, <laughs> I think I've seen the... Um... Yeah. I don't know whether I'm looking at the same f- fossil as you. Um, oh. This is quite, This is pretty interesting because uh, I suppose then that this could be the um, this uh, from near the base of the tail, wherever it is exactly, um, could be homologous with the modern bird tail.
1: Uh, yeah, yeah.
0: Rather than the, the frond at the end, which I think mm. you might think otherwise. Although, of course, Confucius Ornus doesn't have a tail at all, does it? Well, it has Bony. Yeah, mean, sorry, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have a feathery, it doesn't, doesn't have, have
1: a... Retricies. It doesn't yeah, have it doesn't a rectricial fan. Um, mm. And it's been said that in antornathenes don't either, but that's... That may be true for some of them, but not for all of them. There are definitely some. Uh, there's a bunch of Chinese ones that have been grouped together in. Oh, uh, uh, the clade that includes Bolawachia, the the long snouted ones. Long snouted, they've got big teeth at the at the at the jaw tips. Some of there's one called Shiza or something. I can't remember its name. Too many Anantornathines, but there's one of them that's got that does appear to have a your fan, which presumably indicates that the tail was used. Aerodynamically as it is in as it is in living birds but but you yeah, also how, might
0: indicate that the the situation in Confucius Onus, and other in and in or nonnathees is derived it's not the basal condition the lack of retroces
1: The lack of retroces Conf, Confucius ornis is um, is outside the clade called Ornithera morpha that includes in anantonothes plus crown birds and, oh, is and it, it is, oh, right. yeah okay. So, so but that still could it still could be that the lack of rectrices in Confucius ornis and alleged relatives it's meant there's meant to be a few Confucius ornithids or Confucius ornithiforms, maybe the the loss of the rectrices in them is a derived thing, but it has it has opened the door for a number of possibilities because once you you look at, you look at things outside so pygosstylia, the clade that includes Confucius. Confucius ornithids plus ornithuromorphans, which is an plus remaining bird lineages. Once you get outside of Pygostylia, so Archaeopteryx, and as we know, there's there's now debate as to exactly where that goes in phylogeny, is it is it an early member of the bird lineage, or is it a member of the truodontid lineage, or is it a member of the dromaeosaurid lineage, or is it outside the clade that includes all of those lineages? You know, those are all those have all been proposed. Mm. Um, once you get down to those kind of animals, well, Archaeopteryx seems to have feathers on both sides of its long tail. Dromaeosaurids, well, we've just been saying that in Microraptor, you've got a tail tip um, fan. Of, of, uh, well, a short, a short thing at the tip of the tail. Um, uh, Overaptorosaurs, which are the sister taxon to this whole clade containing Paravian, what well, the whole Paravians, so so Archaeopteryx and Dromaeosaurid and birds, they've got a tail tip fan. Caudipteryx and and several other Similar attacks, I certainly do. So um Yeah, well, let's see. Let's <laughs> <laughs> optimizing on a phylogeny on a phylogeny tonight. Of course I won't. But um uh I'm too There's busy. a
0: possibility that it's all very genetically plastic and not very uh conserved in phylogeny, the arrangement of tail feathers. So it might not mean all that much, and it keeps appearing and disappearing. I mean, that's a possibility, which would be very frustrating because we'd never make sense of it. But, yeah, I mean, that seems like a distinct possibility to me. Um,
1: yeah, yeah, I th- I th- yeah. Looking th- at
0: this, um, t- the tip of the tail—it's definitely frond-like, isn't it? It looks like, looks like a, um, like a cycad or something, doesn't it?
1: So, yeah, you know, it
0: they're not—they're not, not significantly overlapping. There, well, they're at the base, but there's, yeah.
1: They really don't look like they have an aerodynamic function. They just, they, they
0: just look just, too floppy. Yeah.
1: They look, and, yeah and not and mutually one, supporting. If it, if they look silly, that's sexual display. <laughs> <laughs> it's all about this. Um, yeah. So so uh, when I was thinking of things we might want to talk about. Not that we've ever got any shortage of things to talk about but um um there's there's as any of our listeners will know, there's no end of feathery things, new feathered dinosaurs and and early birds I mean, it's a struggle to keep up with them really mm.
0: but. well i've I've entirely given up i mean i just I can't keep up with all the new things so. Um, I, I don't know. Tell me about what's been happening recently.
1: Well, uh, uh, well should we move away? From, I don't know. What's still on dinosaurs? Do you want to move away from dinosaurs? Because the dinosaur, th- the thing that's just happened is Paul Serino has just published his giant monograph on Eoraptor. So Eoraptor was published in 93, uh, I think. Preliminary paper in Nature that's like, you know, two pages long, no information whatsoever, pretty much. Uh-huh. Uh <laughs> identified as an early theropod. Uh, um, I think outside the clay that contains all other theropods. And then over the years, people have said, well, it looks a little bit like, you know, as we've learned more about early sauropodomorphs, particularly there's a thing from the UK, there's a whole load of stuff from the Triassic that used to be lumped together as thecodontosaurus and work by Adam Yates over the past, I don't know, since 2000-ish has shown that I'm Peter Galton, who's been working on Thigodonosaurus for decades. <laughs> um, he's he's um, um the, the, basically basically it turns out that the things called Thigodonosaurus aren't aren't all the same. And there's a thing from the Pantifinian I can't remember how you call it. This famous quarry in Wales that yields so-called Thigodonosaurus. The thing there isn't Thigodonosaurus; it's rather different. And Peter Galton. Came up with a brilliant idea of calling it Panty Draco. <laughs> so <laughs> so the, the best known for the from all the good material in Wales, not the stuff from the Bristol Fisher Fields in England, but the stuff from Wales is now called Panty Draco. And Adam Yates showed him his a, sorry, am I boring you? <laughs>
0: Panty Draco. <laughs>
1: Panty Draco is, oh, the in joke is you actually, you actually, you actually have to say it. Panty Draco. <laughs> Look, you you're, you have to censor that. Um, I know,
0: I was almost without an edit. Oh. Oh,
1: sorry. Okay. And um, the, when Adam did a complete skull reconstruction of that, I was like, well, that's Eoraptor. You've just drawn it's, like, yes, it's And I remember him discussing it at a conference, and it's like, yes, it's not lost on me, this looks like Eoraptor. Eoraptor is also, we should say Eoraptor is from Argentina, from the famous Estigualasto formation. formation. Um, and... Uh, Eoraptor is, is famously heterodont with slightly wasted uh, to, sort of tooth shapes that, that don't look like the standard laterally compressed theropod thing. It's got, it's got some unusual tooth shapes. And, uh, and that's like regarded as a key thing of sauropodomorphs. So there's always been the idea, based on the reconstruction of Draco, based on the heterodonty in Eoraptor, there's always been the suggestion that Eoraptor might not be a theropod because after all, once you get to that part of the this is the truth. This is true for any lineages. Once you get down to those kind of amorphous, messy taxa down at the base, well, same with Archaeopteryx, like we were just saying. Like they can easily switch branches because right down at the, the, the base of the lineages, the taxa are so similar. It's, it's not There's not much in it. Uh, and and in, in recent big phylogenies, big analyses, Eoraptor has indeed jumped over to Sauropodomorpha. And in Sereno's. Um, big monograph. He does He does have it as a, as a sauropodomorph. He's found this in his own work as well, so he's obviously fairly happy with that. And this monograph, it is the full, proper, detailed study that, you know, we've always been hoping for, for this animal. And it it illustrates all the details of, an, of anatomy beautifully. The fingers of Eoraptor are kind of like stubbier than, than I sort of remembered them or, or imagined them being. Um, seems, definitely has no phalanges no, there's this, You know, there's this thing, it's, it's well known to artists, but no one else seems to care, that um, a lot of archosaurs, dinosaurs and, and other archosaurs as well, often don't have claws or hooves on digits four and five. Yeah. Most don't know this, so you always see animals being drawn with little hooves or claws on digits four and five. Some of them do have it. There are some animals that definitely do have claws or hooves on digits four and five, but as a generalization, it's not there. This goes for, you know, crocodiles and all crocodile group archosaurs for most dinosaurs. Like I say, it's not 100% hard and fast, but as a general thing people should keep in mind, and they often don't even know about it. And Earaptor definitely has got no, nothing going on on digit 5. Digit 4, you can't see. As far as I remember, the distal end is incomplete. But he's got a really nice diagram, or one or two diagrams in the monograph, which are to do with people try trying, by, by articulating, by manipulating a three-dimensional material, you can get some idea of how far animals could flex and extend their digits and, and, and other parts of their bodies and he's done a bit on this and other people have done this before and it's always good to see people do this, but there's a major caveat in it, and he actually shows there being a huge range of extension and flexion and um, the caveat is that in living animals when you put in the cartilage it's like you may as well just forget what you've estimated based on the bones because yes. Totally different ball game once once cartilage is is involved. Things that you would not think are possible can be achieved due to cartilage, and um, this is this is a substantial topic, isn't it? And it's relevant to the work on neck mobility that I did with Mike Taylor, and Matt Waddell and the whole Digimorph, the the sauropod neck wars, and all and all that kind of stuff. But it's just interesting that Serino touched on it. Phil Center has done a few a few studies on. Uh, digital like, range of motion in, in theropods, which, which ties into this as well. So that's, that's good to see. Also, good to see that, you know, Eoraptor, Sereno has said in passing before that it's got palatal teeth, which is like unexpected in a dinosaur. Mm. And not supposed to be something that's present in dinosaurs, nor in like, like archosaurs. The, 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 the pterosaur archosaur clade it's not meant to be an oyster at all, but, but um, here it is in, in uh, Eoraptor. And um, have, have
0: palatal
1: teeth yeah, but they're not true palatal teeth those are are they even teeth it's actually not it's not certain what they are and uh andre altanovsky who who described these things, he says that they are like novel uh prongs on the on the palate on, on the on the palatal mm-hmm. back they aren't they are not actually teeth, so whether they would have looked like teeth as they're shown in reconstructions um i don't know i don't know I don't have enough experience with over skulls but um, um People Sorry. have said over, the, yeah, that the eoraptor teeth. Some people have said that they. I think Ollie Rauhurt said in, in a big study he did on theropods. He said they're not actually eoraptor They're not actually E-araptor palatal teeth. They're like fish teeth that have gotten washed in, and loosely associated with them. But now we have a brilliant uh, photograph and an interpretive diagram of the eoraptor palatal teeth. And yes, it does have teeth on some of the palatal bones. I think the pterygoids and possibly the vomers as well or the Parasphenoid, something along the midline, anyway. Um, so, yeah, that, that's cool. That's, that's, that's good to see. Um, and and um, Eoraptor being one of these animals where there's a different correlation between people getting like a high-profile, G top-tier, glamour mag paper of two or three pages contains minimal amount of information, but it's a mm-hmm. Wiz paper. And they're not ever following through with a lengthy <laughs> monograph. So people thought that I well, shout out to Mickey Mortimer here because he's done a thing where he uh, actually, you know, did a study of this. It's like, how many, how many of these dinosaurs have been published in top tier journals, two page papers, and then have ever been properly monographed? And it's like, I don't know, a significant percentage of them have not ever been monographed, despite having been published decades ago.
0: And there's a particularly nasty correlation here in that. The very important ones will be the t- ones that tend to get into the top-tier journals, the really interesting things, um, where they've got the least amount of space, and therefore, you know, a lot of the high-profile, really important stuff is the stuff that never gets described properly.
1: Exactly, yeah. And, 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 I, and I, I'm i on slightly thin ice here, because, of course, e- Eo Tyrannus is one of those It has never been monographed, and um, I... I just spoke about Eotyrannus. Eotyrannus is a lower Cretaceous Tyrannosaur, the animal I focused on for my PhD thesis in 2006, I finished it in 2007, and we published a preliminary paper on Eotyrannus in 2001, but we've never published the full monograph. So I'm under the same kind of pressure. It's like, where the hell is the monograph? I just gave a talk about Eotyrannus at a conference um, held at the National Oceanography Centre, the University of Stampton. Um, Basically, to do with like the links between the Yehole fauna in China and the Wealddon fauna in southern England, and um, I tried explaining to, to everyone there like what my excuse is not that i 'm lazy, which sort of you know I said when I said that got a few laughs but um i 've actually done it Andrea Chow and I produced the um, giant monograph on onear Tyranus, you know a huge thing over a hundred pages, many, many illustrations and so on, and uh, novel phylogeny for Tyrannosauroids, which is cool but um It went to a multi-authored volume and, well, I didn't need to say any (laughs) more. People Mm. should never publish in multi-author volumes, volumes where many authors are meant to contribute papers because you might be the hardest-working, most efficient, brilliant person in the world, but you can guarantee there are others who are sort of 12 years behind you in terms of how good they are at submitting. So lots of problems being just stuck in limbo hell for the time mm. but also just doing a monograph in the first place it's like could people if you're not a salaried academic I am not, neither is John if you're not a salaried academic someone who's got a job where you're paid to do research how the hell can you find time to do an enormous 100 page plus monograph it's like, where mm. do you put it into your life when all of your time spent doing jobs to earn money and then you've got other academic projects on as well that you're doing in your, quote, spare time. I mean, it's just, I think, <clears> I, I get whacked about it because like, you need to take months out of your life to do a project like that. And who of us can do that? And I certainly can't. And so, well, that's no. what I haven't done here yet.
0: But you did, didn't you? you? That's what you're saying. You have done it, which is a remarkable effort. But then you went and pissed it away by putting <laughs> in a multi author volume, yeah. which you'll probably never see the light of day.
1: Oh, uh. It'll come out eventually, but I just I just don't know. I did it while I was a salaried. I had a salaried research position at the University of Stamson for like something like seven or eight months, and I managed to do it while I was there. But that was the only chance to ever do it. Um, yeah, so, so yeah. Yeah,
0: was- monographs are great. I mean, they're great things to read, but they're so difficult to produce that it just seems like... Mm. This could be a way of splitting up the work or something maybe
1: i don't know well, i don't know cuz it's the, it's something that we all value you know we use monographs more than anything else they they they're worth a lot more in terms of how much you know you want to know something about a tax you go to the you go to the monograph but um yeah. but the amount of work that, they, that that they're involved and the fact that everything in the current research climate is against you producing such work you know how we're supposed to a working scientists are meant to push out, well, minimum three or four and ordinarily twice that, you know, say six, seven, eight or so papers a year, which are meant to be, you know, high profile, top tier, big impact factor. Well, all of that is the very antithesis of antithesis. How do you say that word? Antithesis. Antithesis.
0: I think so Mike so, Kesey will have something to say about this Oh sure.
1: keezy Him again um, <laughs> so, so yes He says you I understand. don't say R's You don't
0: mm, That's right I don't say R's
1: You just did Yeah
0: Yeah so, r- What do you call
1: those What would you call those animals with the big ears that eat carrots Rabbits <laughs> <laughs> There you go Case closed <laughs> Em, <laughs> um, uh, emphasis yeah.
0: of research.
1: Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so the the, the pressure that's put on academics to, to to churn out papers is like there's no way anyone who's actually trying to you know maintain a research career or establish a research lab or you know get a good publication good publication record. There's no way anyone would ever concentrate. Anyone would ever produce. Um, Monographs. So, um, yeah, that's that's part of the reason for the decline of monographs. In uh, it was it was different back in the day. You know, there was a time, the early 1900s, when certainly in Germany, people were paid. Academics were paid by the word. I think I've heard this about Stromer Ernst Stromer von Reichenbach, who produced these enormous monographs between about approximately 1912 to 1934, it's that kind of time. Famous for describing all the Birea Oasis, theropods and other dinosaurs, so Spinosaurus and Carcharodontosaurus and so on. Um, yeah, he was actually, I think I've heard this, he was paid by the word. So, hmm. so therefore it was, it was in the interest of those people to just, and now we move to the lateral condyle of the <laughs> distal end of the femur. <laughs> Which is, uh, yeah. yeah and that's,
0: it's got its own problems with um, incentives there, doesn't it? You're going to get us some awfully long-winded things
1: yes yes but that's not a bad thing i mean when, when you need no but you don't pres- need content to do that you just
0: make the longest <laughs> possible sentence oh, using the most number of words possible that's what would happen
1: uh, germans don't like using many words uh, germany germans are bad a bad language for that then because they they don't like to have they don't say they don't say the lateral condyle of the femur they say the. From lateral and or something. You know, they have like some some twenty syllable. Sort of... sorry, Germans, but you know it's true. It is true. There's some brilliant, brilliant examples. Maybe that's why they um, were
0: paid by the word, because there was only one.
1: <laughs> yes. <laughs> the game is to see who can get, who can produce a monograph of more than, more than hundred words. Yeah. So I mentioned, in part, I mean, uh, when I was talking about Eotyrannus, I said that we had this wield and Conference, I, I live tweeted throughout the whole thing. It was a two-day event, University of Southampton. Basically, on you know, I'm I'm mostly a Lower Cretaceous person, sp- specifically interested in the the supergroup, and um, for that reason, it was it was brilliant. It was uh, new Lower Cretaceous birds and new Lower Cretaceous metriorhynchid phylosuchian and crocodilomorphs. Now, I'm not calling them crocodiliforms anymore. <laughs> You'll see why. At some stage in the future. And uh, new stuff on... Yeah, yeah, I'm right, right bated breath. Oh, it's just amazing stuff. It's unbelievable. Um, to people who know Crocodylomorphs, so croc group archosaurs, uh, Thalatoseukians, that's the... We should, we should, at some stage, talk about croc group archosaurs. And the, and again, this is another group, when we were talking earlier about new papers, there's, this is another group where some awesome new stuff has, has, has come out. Um, there's a new, well, when I say awesome, I mean fair to middling. There's, there's, <laughs> there's a new South American Crocodile Morph that's, uh, that's just been published. I meant to have the paper open, so I can't remember the name of the authors. Montefeltro and colleagues, I think um a new brazilian thing only about uh, a meter long called batrachomimus which means frog mimic so i thought oh wow it's going to be some weird croc that's got a, a short fat head no it's not it looks like a crocodile i don't know why they've got a batrachomimus
0: oh i was hoping for you know long spindly back legs and uh, the jumping crocodile
1: ah the generic <laughs> epithet alludes to the fact that the type in only known specimen was firstly believed to represent a temnospondyl. How about that? A croc mistaken for a temnospondyl. But it's from the Cretaceous. Now, no, it's not. It's Upper Jurassic. Temnospondyls are present in the Jurassic and Cretaceous. Everyone knows. Everybody knows. It's universally known that temnospondyls persisted into Cretaceous in Australia, right? They're present in the Victoria. It was in Walking with
0: Dinosaurs. So Cooler yeah, Supers, exactly.
1: It's household no, it's it's common knowledge, but a late Jurassic South American one would be a big deal. But so it's a small, it's like a meter long, crocodile shaped crocodiliform crocodylomorph. and the, the reason that it's particularly interesting if you're into this sort of thing is that it's close to the clay that gives rise to like the modern the the crown crocs. It's close to the eusuchians and there are a couple of others of these things. There's one from Brazil called Susiscus. There's one from Australia called Isisfordia. And they are all, like, they've got long, shallow snouts. They're not very big, like about a metre long. And they are, well, as you'd guess, two in Brazil, one in Australia. They're, like, southern. They're Gondwanan. So uh, I'll stop there. But, you know, this, that, that is, that's, that's all a big deal if you're interested in the evolution of, uh, of well, croc type sh- things. We
0: should definitely do a, a tetrapod cats on, a, on crocs at some stage. But I have to read up a bit on crocs so I can sort of vaguely know what you're
1: talking about. Yeah, well, I've, well something I've always been—I've I've written extensively about them. I've got a huge amount of of stuff written on crocodylomorphs, and I've covered a couple of groups on Tet I've, I've covered phylatosaurs or Michirinkids at least fairly recently, but um, there's still there's desperate need for some you know half decent sort of broad coverage which they, uh, on Tetsu and elsewhere, they're, they're, at the moment there isn't anywhere, really. Yeah. There's a couple of books that, that deal with it, but not really sufficiently. Um, I'm working on something at the moment, but, you know, you know what that is. But we'll yes. come back to that.
0: Yeah. So, um, seen any mediocre films in 1998,
1: Darren? <laughs> was it 98 or earlier than that? It, it 98. was 98. 90- I thought it was oh, earlier,
0: but it was 98,
1: yeah. Dudzilla. Yeah. <laughs> Um, terrible travesty of a film, Gino Godzilla in name only. I've actually spoken about that Godzilla film a couple of times because I've at least twice and possibly three times written about Godzilla on Tetzu. Maybe, maybe versions. Well, I think of both version two, both the Science Blogs versions of uh, Science Blogs version of um, uh, Tetra because. There's, Godzilla is one of those things where several paleontologists and people who are interested in the mathematics of scaling and so on, um, engineers, they've commented on Godzilla a few times, basically as if it's a real animal. They've just sort of said in passing, you know, we applied this analysis to Godzilla and da 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 Per Christensen wrote a paper called... Godzilla from a zoologist's perspective, which is all about the mathematics of scaling and what it would mean for a reptile that size. And Ken Carpenter, a palaeontologist who mostly works on dinosaurs, he published a paper on the uh, what Godzilla might be from a phylogenetic standpoint, where it might, because he he regarded it as a theropod and as an abelisaur actually. Um, so there's a few there's a, <laughs> a few very things. Specific,
0: specific theropod
1: groups. Uh, yes, a sister taxon to. I don't know, did he have it as close as Ceratosaurus? I think he had it as an Abelisauroid because of its short face, makes it look a bit... Back Back when he was writing, you know, the only abelisaur's name were really like Abelisaurus and Carnotaurus. Mm. But, um, um, yeah, so there's this... And, and there's also quite a lot of, say, sort of fan fiction stuff online. Now, fan fiction's the wrong term. There's a lot of Kaiju biology type stuff where people have uh, tried to reconstruct the anatomy of Godzilla and how it's uh, radioactive plates work and the plasma gland and it's uh, it's got some godzilla's meant to have some sort of special super regenerative power it's got some special type of cells that allow it to regenerate
0: that is actually a question on the facebook from uh, from sharon hill is godzilla a kaiju
1: yeah well my answer obviously it's a kaiju because you know because kaiju these days not just post-pacific rim but you know kaiju for a long time has has not meant so I think it was Jamie Hedden was complaining about the use of the word the kai- kaiju for a time, saying that because the, the authentic meaning is it's just any weirdy, monstery thing. So Japanese history has got like monster umbrellas and monster shoes and monster cats and monster chipmunks as well as zombie monster whales and giant flesh-eating chickens and flute-playing cats and all kinds of stuff. <laughs> but but so so kaiju originally could be like any monster any weird ass monster that you want
0: yeah
1: attack of the killer umbrellas you know those those are kaiju but then in the sort of hollywood age it means a godzilla type super monster doesn't it it means like a giant thing so godzilla definitely is a kaiju it's the iconic kaiju and all those creatures that godzilla meets in the other movies um you know many, of, many of them. Godzilla and Godzilla-like movies, Gamera and everything. Um, they, they are kaiju too. And obviously now the term kaiju has been co-opted for the the Pacific Rim kaiju as well. So yes, yes, Sharon, Godzilla is a kaiju. And you In would
0: fact, agree, just about anything is a kaiju according ah. to the Japanese. But uh, as long as it's a monster, presumably, and kills some people, right? Um, it doesn't have to kill people. It doesn't have to kill people. It Just has to be a monster of some sort. Cameras and of children everywhere. Yeah. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, how's that a monster then?
1: Oh well, it's big. <laughs> big <bigger> and <than> scary. <laughs> I don't know. So, so, so the the the, the Dudzilla, Dudzilla movie. I mean, uh, the the creature's known as Gino because that sounds for Godzilla in name only. Fans sometimes call it Zilla. Uh, you know that it features in one of the real Godzilla movies. It features in I think Godzilla Final Wars when um, Godzilla, the real Godzilla, is pitted against various monsters all around the world, and um, uh, I forget the name of the guy who's actually controlling which monsters appear, but he says, well, let's see how Godzilla handles this, and he actually like manages to beam in or materialize, I mean, Zilla gino monster the godzilla from that tri-star movie and <laughs> and, it, and it runs towards the real godzilla and godzilla i think godzilla whacks it with its tail and it flies into the sydney opera house because <laughs> they're other oh, in sydney by the way and uh and everything explodes, and then Godzilla does a blast with his plasma breath, and there's there's <laughs> a huge explosion. And the guy who's responsible for bringing Zilla in says, "I knew that tuna-eating monster was a load of rubbish because it lasts about five seconds against the real Godzilla. There's no fight at all." <laughs> so it's a very specific reference to the lameness of uh, uh, what's his name, Dean Thingy, the guy who came up with the uh, that 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 film to. That, that, Dean that, Devlin. Yeah, him. Yeah. Um,
0: okay. Okay. I'm going to lay my cards on the table here. I haven't seen this film in a long time. Not since 1998, I think. Right. I don't remember it as being a good film, but yeah. I don't remember it as being the utter train wreck everyone seems to think it was.
1: I think it's it is an absolute travesty of a movie for for many reasons. I mean, it's just I was, I was saying this on on Facebook the other day. Actually, it's, it's like it had
0: Ferris Bueller in it.
1: Well, Ferris Bueller's okay. I don't, I don't mind him. Oh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off is <laughs> one of my favourite films. Brilliant. But, um, and Stewie's homage to it from Family Guy is one of my best favourite scenes from Family Guy. But um, uh, I'm sure you'll know what I'm talking about. Um, but Godzilla is just... Godzilla, that thing, that, that version of the movie, was objectively bad. I mean, so you may not remember, but um, Godzilla comes to New York, okay? New York. New York. That's in the Atlantic. I'm pretty sure it comes to New York. Yeah. I mean, what am I thinking? And I refuse to watch it beyond that point. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking. So Godzilla comes to New York, stops around a bit, hides, despite the fact that it's like a 300-foot-long unstoppable mega monster, it hides as if it's got things to hide from, and it burrows, it makes tunnels under the ground, it changes size consistently throughout the movie. There's one point where some people are like in a subway tunnel or something, or one of the tunnels. They're in a tunnel, and you see its eye at the end of the tunnel, and its eye is as big as the tunnel, and the tunnel is the size of a large building. Uh, I don't know, like let's say sort of, you know, like 30 metres across, the size of its eye. And then there's other points in the movie where the, the main characters are driving away in a yellow cab. They, um, they drive into its mouth, well, if its eye was building-sized, its mouth should be a uh, hundred meters long or something stupid. Something large ins-
0: building-sized.
1: Large <laughs> building size. and now it's got a little car in it, and and the teeth are like only sort of you know a meter a meter long. It's like that's totally inconsistent. And other things which change size as well. We are first of all, I think, okay, I may be wrong here, but we're sort of made to like the monster. Um, Ferris Bueller's character. What's his real name? Ferris Bueller.
0: Isn't that was the actor? That's the man's name. <laughs> Matthew Broderick.
1: That's Broderick. Broderick's character of unforgettable name, Theop theolopolis He's he's got he's got a, uh, a Greek sounding name.
0: Doctor Nico uh, t- tatopoulos
1: Tatopoulos. Yeah, him. He um he basically says at one point in the movie that quite early on in the film he says this isn't some unstoppable horrible monster it's just an animal that's just you know trying to do an animal thing and they put a giant pile of fish in Times square or something I think some famous area in New York and the animal comes in and it's clear that it's not the scene is very much pitched as it's not a bad monster it's not a monster it's not a bad animal it's just an animal that's like doing what animals do it's looking around for food it's like you know going for a little bit of a swim, digging in a little burrow. It's just doing its thing. And um, and so that's like, oh, Godzilla's not all that bad. Nothing, again, nothing at all like the unstoppable force of nature that is the real Godzilla. So it's like, it's like, we're meant to like this creature. And then at the end, they're like, kill it, kill it, kill it. And they get it trapped on a bridge and it gets all caught in the bridge and they're literally firing missiles into its flesh and it's exploding and crying in pain. And you're To me, that's just like, hold on, this is a thing that we're meant to like. We're meant to like having a. Again, this could just be me. I've no idea. I haven't spoken enough about this film with other people. But um, is it just me? Is is it like you're you're meant to like the creature? It was a
0: tragedy, Darren. It was a tragedy.
1: It's not, but the point is, yes, it is a tragedy. But the point is, it's not pitched as a tragedy. That part of the movie, that's the bit of the film where you're meant to stand up in your chair and whoop and holler and punch the, you know, like Americans do in cinemas. So go, wow, wow, yeah, like that. that's the bit when you're meant to do that in the cinema, because you're meant, yeah, we want to kill that that hmm. sob, yay, blow him, blow him to pieces. We want to, we want to see his blood. Um, <laughs> 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 with apologies, American <laughs> um, listeners. it's so yeah, completely inconsistent. And then there's the fact. Okay, so that makes it like it's not an opinion. It's objectively a bad movie for that reason. And it's also objectively a movie for bad reason because cause, um, so everything I've just said is about hey, it's a giant monster walking around New York. It's a bit of a problem. We're going to deal with it. Oh, it's had babies. There's a hundred babies. There's babies everywhere. Yeah. What, what yeah. are we going to do with babies? Oh, I know. Let's, um, let's walk. There's, they introduced this baby problem, which is like a whole different film. It's like that would, that should be Godzilla 2. The baby <laughs> or something. That Attack of be, the babies. Yeah. Attack of the baby Godzilla's. It's a <laughs> different film. And they end up killing all the babies with, uh, jets or something. Um, they're in a, I don't know, a Super Bowl stadium or something. And they blow them all up. And, um, and there's a, there's a character in it, and this is also – this is rather like – this reminds me of Independence Day, which, of course, is done by the same people, right? It's really funny in a movie. You can tell how bad a film is when someone's first line, the literally first thing they say, is something that nobody would actually ever say in real life. And I'm, I could be wrong here, but I'm pretty sure she walks in and her first line is, Seropoda Allosaurus. Because <laughs> her opinion is that Godzilla – is a okay? So we know from the, like, the opening credits of the film, we know that Godzilla is a giant mutant iguana-type thing that's been affected by radiation, mm-hmm. of course. Of course. But she thinks that it's actually like a modern-day prehistoric survivor. She's clearly a cryptozoologist, and she and she just comes in and says, it's sort of an Allosaurus." So what someone, what some clever researcher person did is they went to a Look on prehistoric animals, they flicked it open and they said, oh, There's a weird word I've never seen before, Sauropoda. And there's another weird word I've never seen before, Allosaurus. Let's just mash them together, Sauropoda Allosaurus. And it's like, Come on, that's just an insult. That is an insult. It's like, it's as bad as saying Homo sapien, uh, or maybe worse, I don't know. But um, um,
0: Yeah, so that's why it's an objectively bad film.
1: Yeah, that's my case. Is there a counter-argument? No, there isn't.
0: Well, probably not. I don't think it was a good film. Um, I I still maintain that it wasn't tremendously worse than other monster films I could mention. Uh, But, okay, taking a couple of things, it's amazing how similar the plot is to Cloverfield. Yeah. Um, uh, Cloverfield's size is inconsistent. The monster in Cloverfield, its its size is inconsistent, isn't it? Uh,
1: Yes, it is. Yes, it definitely is. Because at the end, when it when it bites Hunt to death, it's definitely a different size from other parts of the film.
0: Yes. And what... they introduced the whole parasites thing, like yeah. standing in for Godzilla babies. Where did this come from? Is this original to the 98 film or is that something? Because the baby motif comes up in a lot of them, doesn't it? It came up in Pacific Rim.
1: Did it? Oh yeah, there's a pregnant, yeah, pregnant yeah, yeah. And it comes oh, out, and
0: it's still alive.
1: Yeah. Spoiler. Oh, spoiler. Oh yeah, spoiler for the movie we've just been talking about. I think everyone's seen. Got even you, Jessica, the only person to complain about um the lack of spoiler alerts. Um. Well, there's. I mean, there's there's the whole there's a the whole theme of of like um. A uh, uh, babies, they're, they're being babies of monsters because there's like Son of Kong, is from like the same like the year after King Kong was made, nineteen thirty three or thirty four, and there's there's obviously like Son of Godzilla going back to I mean like you know Toho original Godzilla, so there's always kind of that idea there. But what the the thing that you could say that they explored with Cloverfield, and perhaps with the nineteen ninety eight Tri-Star Godzilla movie as well is that nowadays, and this could be, and I, I think I've stolen this idea from Mark Witten actually, but let's forget I said that. It's original to me. Um, that, that since Jurassic Park, we could have the idea that, um, that, that people don't want their monsters to just be like, you know, mega monsters sort or of building size, Godzilla-sized things. They also imagine now that there are, like, human-sized things that can actually, like, follow you into a house. And think about it. that's J- Jurassic Park... I know for a fact that when people were watching Jurassic Park in the cinema, they all know what Tyrannosaurus is, and they all expect dinosaurs to be Tyrannosaurus-sized. But they didn't know the average, like, sort of, you know, Jurassic Park viewer doesn't hasn't heard of okay those things in Jurassic Park aren't Velociraptors, but they're called Velociraptors, Deinonychuses, whatever they are. They don't know about those kinds of animals, so they're like, what are those things that are like able to come into open kitchen doors or whatever? Um, maybe that is perhaps the in monster movies, maybe that's the sort of start of the idea that as well as having the giant Tyrannosaurus or Godzilla, you've also got a human-sized thing that can come into your house.
0: Mm, that's a good point. That's an interesting point. that, uh, Yeah, to, to have both of them going on at the same time, the giant thing and also the more stealthy, um, yeah. smaller monster that can also get you. You're not safe. You're not safe. Because I guess you can feel safe just by escaping the attention of a giant.
1: Well, that's right. Giant.
0: Thing like Godzilla,
1: yeah. right? I always, I always had nightmares about Godzilla as a child, and they basically, they basically involved me like ducking down behind walls so that it couldn't see through the window, that sort of thing. So you think you're perhaps safe from the mega monster, but it's not going to work if something's going to run into your house. Um, but then, you know, you know, it's not as if the idea of human-sized creatures is novel to Jurassic Park, is it? I mean, well,
0: no, uh, smaller monsters have been around forever. It's the yeah. combination of both. But also with Cloverfield and uh, and Godzilla 1998, a, um, the whole giant monster coming out of the ocean and yeah. trashing New York with the smaller monsters running around at the same time. It's tremendously similar.
1: Well, there was a lot of, you know, we spoke about um, Cloverfield. Did, was it in the episode that we did with Blake? Whenever mm. that was, what was? Episode 37 or whatever. Um, <laughs> that... Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, people were speculating for a while that um, Cloverfield was going to be a, uh, a sort of unique take on on Godzilla, like a new Godzilla movie. But, um, so, why are we talking about Godzilla, John?
0: Um, because there's a new trailer out, which no one can see,
1: mm. um, so including people, me. So, to the people that have seen it, well, they'll know what it looks like, and to the people who haven't seen it. Uh, bad luck. But it looks. It's, it's, what Warner Brothers have done is they. Um, it goes up online, uh, various places online, uh, like it's been on YouTube, it's been on Vimeo, it's been on a uh, couple of other things like that, where people can. Uh, um, what's that one called? Daily Motion. What the hell is Daily Motion? What a weird name. Anyway, um,
0: but um, I want my motion weekly. <laughs> <laughs> weekly. Hourly.
1: It's been on all those things, and it's up for like half a day or a day or two and then it disappears and Warner Brothers say no we don't want people to share this for copyright reasons we're not releasing it yet and there's a widespread suspicion that they are streisanding. The Streisand effect is in play which basically means that you ban something in order to make it well she didn't do it to make it more popular but it became more popular right Barbara Streisand banned something and then everyone went to search for it apparently you're an expert on Barbara Streisand, you know this. Oh yeah,
0: of course. Yeah. This is old That's... Barbara Streisand law. Barbara... She was, was very fun... unfairly treated, poor Barbara Streisand.
1: Uh the funny thing is there's a a funny crossover between Barbara Streisand and Godzilla, of course, because Mecha Streisand in <laughs> 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 was appeared several times in South Park, one of the one of the most iconic characters in uh <laughs> so, <laughs> at last I have the last triangle of Zinta. <laughs> Barbara Streisand I know a lot of interesting stuff about Barbara and I'll tell you when we stop recording uh, hmm. strange women um, 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 she, yeah Hillary Clinton wouldn't let, uh, no, that's a long story um, so th- they seem to be removing the, um, the, the Godzilla trailer in order to stop people watching it but knowing that it's deliberately like Building more interest in it, it's like people are like obviously working hard to find it. Um, you know, Godzilla must have been Godzilla 2014 has obviously been. Googled like a billion billion times, we were trying to find this this video, and there's loads of terrible fan-made things. Why do people make fan-made trailers? Just do not, don't man. do it for crying out loud! Please, just stop it. <laughs> They're always awful. They're so clearly cobbled together from the best bits of other movies, and they've got and they've got standard like. I remember seeing one for a, a, a fan-made Thundercats trailer. Let's pretend there's going to be like a big budget Thundercats uh, film. And one of the funniest things online, in my opinion, is the, the article in, I think, The Onion about Michael Bay is going to make Thundercats. Google Michael Bay Thundercats. A... <laughs> I laugh for like a day after reading that. Uh, in, a, in a surprising move, Bay has decided to axe one of the franchise's most popular heroes, Pantera. And instead, it's going to focus on the Asinine relationship between Snarf and the new character Snarfette. <laughs> 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 uh, um. Anyway, yeah. Um, okay. Going off a
0: tangent.
1: Yes. So let's let's just take it back a bit. Let's go back to the Godzilla, right? So the the new. Okay. So you haven't. Should, should I tell people? I I want to tell people what the Godzilla trailer looks like because they haven't seen it. Sure. Why not? Okay. So so. The This teaser trailer, it's not really a proper trailer, it's very short. It's, I don't know, like a minute long or so. It's really, really good. It looks good. And it's good. We think it's good because it's not a um, sort of special effects CG fest. It's somber. It's kind of somewhat disturbing. its uh, It's exactly what it should be. You don't get a clear view of any creatures. We hear... Robert Oppenheimer's famous um, interview uh, dialogue, where he says, you, "You've all you've all heard this. It's um it's the thing where he says he's explaining like the immediate reaction to them seeing the successful bomb test, where he's saying, you know, some people cried, most of us silent. We knew the world would never be the same again. I was reminded of the Hindu scripture." Um, I've the, the, uh, got to remember his name, uh, where he's describing the part where um, Vishnu, Vishnu takes on his multi-armed form and says, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And he's saying this in a really sort of emotional kind of, you know, um, uh, sort of heavy way, very genuine, very genuine, toned his voice. And while, he's, while we're hearing his dialogue, we're just seeing a smashed cityscape and it looks a little bit like LA a little bit but it's more likely uh, somewhere Japan it may I had never been to Tokyo so I don't know if it looks like Tokyo but we see buildings literally we
0: have this thing called uh, photography now so you can actually see places Uh, that you've never been to
1: not into that I tend to like (laughs) uh, to if I don't if I haven't seen it with my (laughs) (laughs) you know what I mean you see a bit of a cityscape Cities tend to look alike, and you can't. When you're looking at a <laughs> smashed city, thick poles of smoke and stuff, it's hard to tell. Yeah, <laughs> it's one of my cities.
0: specialist talents. I'm pretty good at it.
1: Yeah. So we basically we we can we we see a smashed city. We see like you know trains have been trodden on, loads of dead people and stuff, and and then we see. Did those people look Japanese? Well, they were too far away to tell. Uh but, they were just generic humans, and and uh, and now we we see we. we uh, so you've got Oppenheimer's speech in the background. With the the camera pans across, we come to a huge pile of what you, what turns out to be like a huge mass of of like soil and debris and concrete and stuff, which is piled up. It's as the, as the side of a crater where there is the enormous body of a creature, a huge creature. And, um, and you're thinking, oh, it's Godzilla. But no, it's not Godzilla. It doesn't look right. It's like hands and feet. It's not Godzilla. And it's not Godzilla. It's another thing that's dead. We're seeing its downed body. And then the camera sort of moves around and we go through like, all this swirling mass of like dust and debris in the air. All these things are falling down, bits of buildings and car-sized objects. And then you sort of get the, the suggestion of a shadowy, what might be a hand. And, and, and we keep panning up and panning up and panning up. And we're sort of seeing swirling clouds of dust. And, and then you realize we're looking at the back and the neck of what's clearly Godzilla. You see the giant plates on its back. And, uh, and then we come to its head and it does its trademark vocalization, which I'm not going to try. and copy. Oh,
0: come on, come on. It has to go at the beginning of the podcast, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> but, it's, but it's not a thing that people can imitate. 'Cause it's not just a rah it's like a rah, oh, There we go. Of, it's a bit of a <laughs> it's has uh, got a bit of a whale thing going in there as well as a, a roar. Um Um I'll do a better one. You can have a better one for the uh, okay. Okay. the uh the the opening. Um and yeah, and and there we go. That's 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 the teaser trailer. And it's it is just epic. I think it's Brilliant. So, if the film itself is anything like that, is pitched like that in terms of the sombre mood and the whole look of it, we know the look of the creature because you know there've been sneak peeks all over the place uh, leaked at, I think Comic Con and and. Uh, do you know that there's a Comic Con in the UK? No. Twenty seventh, twenty eighth October, I believe, in London. Hmm. No. Um.
0: Yeah. Okay, we'll talk about that after the podcast. Yeah. 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 Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm a bit worried because obviously things get trailers and movies can be very different things. I don't have a lot of confidence. It could be great. There have been some good ones, haven't there? Yeah. uh, I hope it's good. The problem is, it's so done now, isn't it? It's so much. There's so many films. It's a bit like the zombie thing a few years ago. There have been so many. You just have, you have to do exceptional ones for to be a worthwhile entry.
1: Yes, and people often... I, I, I haven't heard a good thing about World War Z. Not World War Z, sorry. I um, haven't heard a single good thing about it. Because isn't it based on books? So uh, people are expecting like a load of stuff that would make it different, and they just avoided all that, and it's just a bog-standard... A bog Brad Pitt running around with not normal zombies, because now, you know, a few, few movies, zombies are sort of I Am Legend style zombies. They're sort of like super speedy, carnivorous cheetah people zombies, which uh, kind yeah, of well, that ruined.
0: Start, that started with um, uh, 28 Days Later, didn't
1: it? Eight Days Later, yes. yeah. But that was a good uh, film.
0: I liked that. that was
1: a, I like that, that very that much. Was a great, that was a great zombie yeah. film. <laughs> yeah, I don't like 28... 28- was the sequel weeks later? Yeah, weeks that, later. No, it's that's nowhere near terrible. There. Yeah, um, mm. yeah. Well, there okay, go. I'll finish my tarpon. Can you see it?
0: Yeah, it's very nice. It's very nice. I don't think the people listening to the podcast will be able to see it, though.
1: I'll screw them. Oh, yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah see? Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> For our listeners at home, Darren is holding up a fish.
1: I also did a that is called a pinecone fish.
0: Now he's holding up another fish.
1: Yeah. Drawing of a, a fish, it's quite
0: a nice. Dolphin fish. Yeah.
1: That is a paku, and oh, that is a, a scorpion, a rockfish, stonefish yeah. rather, and that is a lantern Yeah. Right. Very nice. People yeah, have to I, buy the book. And like, oh shh. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to talk about it. Right. So, um, do we want to wrap up or do we want to talk about books? We've we've been. Um, well,
0: yeah, we should we should we should mention the 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 big. The, the the books and the um yeah and then we should oh we've got we've got heaps and heaps of questions
1: we've got too many
0: we've got too many questions um maybe we should do next time maybe we should do uh, like just a show of questions
1: well i could do what i did last time i could just rapidly go through the questions on facebook if that's what you're looking at
0: yeah, I'm looking so, at f- Facebook. So, Alex, okay, so let's I... just go through the questions. Okay,
1: yep. Alex Stein. Have you, so, hi, Alex. And hi to everyone, and thank you to everyone for leaving comments and likes and tweets and so on. Uh, Alex says, have you ever heard about Crocodilus bugtiensis, a monster, a legacy in Croc, that Hunted Indricators? Yes, I have. Sharon Hill says, is Godzilla a kaiju? Well, we answered that. Um, Andrea Chow says, my question, did the Yehel Wield in 2013 discuss Godzilla, that, to say that Godzilla is just an oil yesterdays type version of a micro <laughs> like Salamander? <laughs> yes, there was specifically a talk on that very issue. So, Serious question, is a video of your Eateranus talk available online? That's an excellent question, and I'll look into that. I don't think, I don't think it was filmed. Speaking of uh, Memo says, Memo Kosman, who we're going to talk about at great length one day. <laughs> speaking of, uh, he, of course, our collaborator, uh, we did all yesterdays with Memo, and the, uh, all your yesterdays, our latest book from regular books, is essentially Memo's baby. Um, Memo says, speaking of Mystery Giant Crocs, can you also mention the fictitious Catonus sucus lethii? Okay, so look, Alex's question about Crocodilus bugtiensis. So this is the there's in Pakistan there's a um, I don't know if it's a locality, but there's certainly like a whole bunch of mostly large mammals that come from a place called the Bugti Formation. I think there are Elasmosaurus, uh, mm, Elasmotheres. There, you know, giant giant rhinos related to the famous Elasmotherium of the Pleistocene. There are Indricotheres there, and there's this giant. Crocodile, which is, so far as I know, nobody's ever gone much further than calling it Crocodilus bugtiensis. Crocodilus, of course, being the sort of like catch all generic term for basically any fossil croc. It's it's almost certainly not Crocodilus, but it's, I don't know what it is. It might be, I think I've heard that it might be a termistamine, a relative of uh, the surviving Asiatic false gharial, termistoma or thomistema. And this thing, Crocodilus bugtiensis, is gigantic with published lengths of 10 meters. And it has been suggested, Don Prothero says this in his Rhino Giants book that he published uh, last year or this year, it's been suggested that it could well have been big enough to prey on things like hendricothyrs, you know, the biggest land mammals of all time. Uh, Cotonosuchus lethii, which Memo mentions, this comes from a book. So Cotonosuchus, for those of you you who, who of course, know of, uh, I presume the name's based on Cthulhu, it's a reference to Cthulhu, I'm pretty sure of that of that. It's in Henry G. and Lewis Ray's Field Guide to Dinosaurs. And because um, Lewis obviously provided all the pictures, and I think he'd done some of the, he he had produced some of the pictures before they started work on the book. And he has done this reconstruction of a giant crocodiliform attacking Suchomimus, the Spinosaur. <clears throat> and the book has that giant crocodile labelled as Cothonosuchus lethii. So I think what happened, well I know what happened, is that Lewis invented a giant croc for the purposes of this painting because he knew there were big crocs that lived alongside those big spinosaurs. You know, there were, like Sarcosuchus, that's a giant crocodile that lived alongside Spinosaurus. So he like imagined there was a giant croc, but then found out that it didn't look quite right. Henry G, as the author, couldn't find an animal that matched it, so they just... That, that that book, Field Guide to Dinosaurs, is speculative zoology anyway. So I think they just decided to have some fun with it. They gave it a yeah. picture's name. So. Um, James Albright, happy cat podding. Thank you, James. Jessica Lawrence Wujek, ooh, our ichthyosaur convention at the red line was so much fun. It was great to geek out. Yeah, that's not a question, but thank you, Jessica. I agree with you. It was great. Um, uh, Max Blake uh, works on beetles, and um, I. I Worked with him on the Lynx links paper that we published last this year. Uh, he wants to, he basically asserting that Godzilla is based on a mutated Tupinambis. Tupinambis is the tegu, really awesome South American lizard, and, and Max owns a tegu, which is called uh, Rigel, after Rigel from Farscape. Evidence comes from the amphibious nature of the beast, the ability to run on two legs, heavy scales on the head. The lack of a honking great big head and jowls combo rules out Salvatore, Varanus Salvatore, giant Papuan crocodile monitor, and let's go to this female. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, and, oh, Jeff. Uh, okay, sorry, I didn't say that. BDFJJL on Facebook <laughs> says he wants us to talk about how nature papers can be happily published on material illegally taken out of China. Uh, now... Um, China has fairly strict rules on the exportation of fossils, as is well known. There's a whole list of like um, specific rules and regulations that people have to sort of hoops they have to jump through in order to satisfy administrative, you know, paperwork and stuff. And there are some scientists who are publishing on Chinese stuff that, um, yeah, haven't done it by the books and... And there's and i I could talk about that at length, I mean he obviously wants me to say something that we probably shouldn't do in a podcast <laughs> <laughs> and there's many, many other questions that we're gonna to have to stop there um so I wanted to at least say that all your yesterday's is out and has done very well, right? yeah, it has done well.
0: Thank you to the people that donated for their copies. That's great. You can get it as a free download um. At irregularbooks.co, so just go there and you can you can download it for free. Yeah, do you want to talk about it? Um,
1: yeah. Go. I well, there's so much to say about it that I think we should save it to another time. Um. So. Yeah, yeah. I maybe mean, we should have a regular book special
0: with Memo yeah. on, and maybe we can talk about several of these things. Um. So yeah, maybe we'll save that to another time. But yeah, you should definitely go grab a copy. Irregularbooks.co.
1: Yeah, well done to Memo for putting that together. I mean, it's a, yeah. it looked spectacular. Really, really That's like it. A, I've written about it on TetZoo. Um, and as John said, it's available for free. So, um, yeah, well yeah, done. You put a it.
0: tremendous amount of work into it. So.
1: Yeah. And so, of course, that leads us to our next book or books, the Cryptozoologicon, which mm. we are, well, we're we're nearly done, aren't we? well let's say
0: we're madly scrabbling towards the end
1: <laughs> we're getting there
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's close now but we don't have a lot of time left to stick to our original deadline so or our revised deadline let's be honest um
1: yeah but yeah it's coming
0: it's coming along it it, it still looks like we'll make it so that's good um
1: yes we should say that we are hoping you know it's, it's a good thing with these kind of books to to promote them at events that are relevant to the subject area and for cryptozoologicon i think everyone knows it's a cryptozoology themed book so we've been looking at you know where would you let's say you do a book on uh, mark Witten's book on pterosaurs for example he did a launch at the natural history museum in london the, the perfect venue for that sort of thing so think about a book a cryptozoology themed book where would you hold like a launch event and this is a real problem we can't find Many slash any um places that yeah, we 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 are we are pursuing some leads, you know, we are looking into this. But we've been we've been thinking about doing the Forty and Times Unconvention as it's known, which seems to happen sporadically and occasionally. I don't really know when the next one is. I think Weird Weekend, which happens every year but is in a very difficult place to get to, in rural North Devon. I don't know about that one. Um yeah. but yeah, I, I think we're if anyone yes. could, got any bright ideas then uh, you know we might potentially be interested yeah um,
0: well i'll just say i mean i think don't think it's it's bad to say we're looking to launch at the end of november early december same same sort of time period as uh all yesterday's last year so that's when we're looking to have some sort of book launchy event type thing in london or nearby yes um is that cryptozoologicon done for now for now yeah i think we should yeah. release a couple more little bits from it um, mm. yeah. So stay tuned to the, for that. Right, um I think we need to say thanks to people who have donated to the podcast because we forgot to do that last week despite the fact that we had some um last week last last month now yeah. is not it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Dear. Um, a while. Despite the fact that we got some really quite generous donations. So yes, thank you very much. That that's much
1: appreciated. Yeah, thank you so much to our anonymous benefactors.
0: Yes, indeed. Um, If people want to donate more money, they can go to tetsu.com com, press the big donate button. Or donate to the book um, when you go to download uh, all your yesterdays. There's a donation button on that one too. Uh, What else? Where do they find you on the web?
1: Oh, I have a little blog called Tetrapod Zoology, currently hosted at Scientific American. Um, I'm so busy at the moment, I'm not really able to put any time into blogging. I think I've only done two articles this month so far. But um, if I didn't have to work for money, I'd blog a lot more. (laughs) So (laughs) if people would just like... More to the point, if you
0: got paid to blog...
1: If I got paid more to blog, more, I do get more. paid to blog as a Scientific American blogger. But yes. we're talking about bus fare money here. We're not talking about money you can get even. I'm not even going to say live on, even though I just did. But it's not it's not money that's of any use in terms of like paying for stuff. So uh, yeah. Feeding so come children. on, feeding children <laughs> and the other <laughs> useless sort of feeding, things that you do. Feeding, paying for lights, all the yeah. Um, so, so yeah, but uh, so I always have. A, I, I get a bit of a downer about that every now and again. The fact that I just can't make the time to blog. And, um, so mm. yes, yeah. So there's all that. So, so Scientific American, Tejbod Zoology I tweet at the shield will be down in moments. You may start your landing. <laughs> um, at Tet Zoo. Tweet at at Tet Zoo. Thank you to everyone that follows me and provides witty banter. There's a Titch Audio Facebook page. Uh, I do have a Tumblr, but I've given up on that. <laughs> you?
0: <laughs> I have a Tumblr. It's at log.johnconway.co. My general website is johnconway.co, and I have a Twitter, which is Terrace. You find links to that. Nykterteris. J- Just pronounce Terrace. Shut up, you buffoon. Um, <laughs> probably best just to find links to that on my facebook on my website johnconway.co um and oh yeah and i think we should mention you know irregularbooks.co which is where you can find where to buy all yesterdays and download all your yesterdays and see a little bit of detail about um our upcoming book cryptozoologicon
1: <clears throat> yes I yes that's we're it. good i think all that's left is for us to say goodbye I don't like to.